Chapter Thirteen of the Life Everlasting by Marie Corelli. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Lisa Statler. The House of Aselzion. It is not necessary to enter into particular details of the journey I now entered upon and completed during the ensuing week. My destination was a remote and mountainous corner of the Biscayan coast situated a little more than three days distance from paris i went alone knowing that this was imperative and arrived without any untoward adventure scarcely fatigued though i had travelled by night as well as by day it was only at the end of my journey that i found myself confronted by any difficulty and then i had to realize that though the chateau des as it was called was perfectly well known to the inhabitants of the surrounding district. No one seemed inclined to show me the nearest way there, or even to let me have the accommodation of a vehicle to take me up the steep ascent which led to it. The chateau itself could be seen from all parts of the village, especially from the seashore, over which it hung like a toppling crown of the fortress-like rock on which it was erected. "'It is a monastery,' said a man, of whom I asked the way, speaking in a curious kind of guttural patois, half French and half Spanish. No woman goes there. I explained that I was entrusted with an important message. He shook his head. Not for any money would I take you, he declared. I should be afraid for myself. Nothing could move him from his resolve. So I made up my mind to leave my small luggage at the inn and walk up the steep road, which I could see winding like a width of white ribbon towards the goal of my desires. A group of idle peasants watched me curiously as I spoke to the landlady, and asked her to take care of my few belongings, till I either sent for them or returned to fetch them, to which arrangement she readily consented. She was a buxom, pleasant little Frenchwoman, and inclined to be friendly. "'I assure you, mademoiselle, you will return immediately,' she said with a bright smile. "'The Chateau de Selzion is a place where no woman is ever seen, and a lady alone, ah, mon Dieu, impossible. There are terrible things done there, so they say. It is a house of mystery. In the daytime it looks as it does now, dark as though it were a prison.' but sometimes at night one sees it lit up as though it were on fire, every window full of something that shines like the sun. It is a brotherhood that lives there, not of the church. Ah, no, heaven forbid! But they are rich and powerful men, and it is said they study some strange science. Our traders serve them only at the outer gates, and never go beyond. And in the midnight one hears the organ playing in their chapel, and there is a sound of singing on the very waves of the sea. I beg of you, mademoiselle, think well of what you do before you go to such a place, for they will send you away. I am sure they will send you away. I smiled and thanked her for her well-meant warning. I have a message to give to the master of the brotherhood, I said. If I am not allowed to deliver it and the gate is shut in my face, I can only come back again, but I must do my best to gain an entrance if possible. And with these words I turned away and commenced my solitary walk. I had arrived in the early afternoon, and the sun was still high in the heavens. The heat was intense, and the air was absolutely still. As I climbed higher and higher, the murmuring noises of human life in the little village I had left behind me grew less and less, and presently sank altogether out of hearing, 
and I became gradually aware of the great and solemn solitude that everywhere encompassed me. No stray sheep browsed on the burnt brown grass of the rocky height I was slowly ascending. No bird soared through the dazzling deep blue of the vacant sky. The only sound I could hear was the soft, rhythmic plash of small waves on the beach below, and an indefinite deeper murmur of the sea breaking through a cave in the far distance. There was something very grand in the silence and loneliness of the scene, and something very pitiful too, so I thought, about my own self, toiling up the rocky path in mingled hope and fear towards that grim pile of dark stone towers and high forbidding walls, where it was just possible I might meet with but a discouraging reception. Yet with a letter from him who signed himself your lover, lying against my heart, I felt I had a talisman to open doors, even more closely barred. Nevertheless, my courage gave way a little when I at last stood before the heavy iron gates set in a lofty archway of stone, through which I could see nothing but cavernous blackness. The road I had followed ended in a broad circular sweep opposite this archway, and a few tall pines twisted and gnarled in bough and stem, as though the full force of many a storm winds had battered and bent them out of their natural shapes were the only relief to the barrenness of the ground. An iron chain with a massive ring at the end suggested itself as the possible means of pulling a bell, or otherwise attracting attention, but for some minutes I had not the boldness to handle it. I stood gazing at the frowning portal with a sense of utter loneliness and desolation. The quick, resistless impulse that had fired me to make the journey, and which, as it were, had driven me along by its own impetus, suddenly died away into a dreary consciousness of inadequateness and folly on my own part, and I began to reproach myself for yielding so utterly to the casual influence of one who, after all, must in a reasonable way be considered a stranger. For what was Raphael Centaurus to me? Merely an old college friend of the man who, for a fortnight, had been my host, and with whom he chanced to renew acquaintanceship during a yachting tour? Anything more simple and utterly commonplace never occurred. Yet, here was I, full of strange impressions and visions, which were possibly only the result of clever hypnotism, practiced on me because the hypnotist had possibly discovered in my temperament some suitable subject matter for an essay of his skill. And I had so readily succumbed to his influence as to make a journey of hundreds of miles to a place I had never heard of before, on the chance of seeing a man of whom I knew nothing, except that, according to what Raphael Santoris had said of him, he was the follower of a great psychic teacher whom once I had known. Such doubtful and darkening thoughts as these, chasing one another rapidly through my brain, made me severely accuse myself of rash and unpardonable folly in all I had done or was doing. And I was almost on the point of turning away and retracing my steps when a sudden ray of light, not of the sun, struck itself sharply, as it were, before my eyes and hurt them with its blinding glitter. It was like a whip of fire lashing my hesitating mind, and it startled me into instant action. Without pausing further to think what I was about, I went straight up to the entrance of the chateau and pulled at the iron chain. The gates swung open at once, and swiftly, without sound, 
and I stepped into the dark passage within, whereupon they as noiselessly closed again behind me. There was no going back now, and nerving myself to resolution, I walked quickly on through what was evidently a long corridor with a lofty arched roof of massive stone. It was dark and cool and refreshing after the great heat outside, and I saw a faint light at the end towards which I made my way. The light widened as I drew near, and an exclamation of relief and pleasure escaped me as I suddenly found myself in a picturesque quadrangle, divided into fair green lawns and parterres of flowers. Straight opposite me as I approached, a richly carved double oaken door stood wide open, enabling me to look into a vast circular domed hall, in the centre of which a fountain sent up tall silver columns of spray, which fell again with a tinkling musical splash into a sunken pool bordered with white marble, where delicate pale blue water lilies floated on the surface of the water. Enchanted by this glimpse of loveliness, I went straight on and entered without seeking the right of admission, and then stood looking about me in wonder and admiration. If this was the house of Aselzion, where such difficult lessons had to be learned, and such trying ordeals had to be faced, it certainly did not seem like a house of penance and mortification, but rather of luxury. Exquisite white marble statues were set around the hall in various niches between banked-up masses of roses and other blossoms, many of them perfect copies of the classic models, and all expressing either strength and resolution or beauty and repose. And most wonderful of all was the light that poured in from the high dome. I could have said with truth that it was like that light which never was on sea or land. It was not the light of the sun, but something more softened and more intense, and was totally indescribable. Fascinated by the restful charm of my surroundings, I seated myself on a marble bench near the fountain, and watched the sparkle of the water as it rose in rainbow radiance, and fell again into the darker shadows of the pool. And I had for a moment lost myself in a kind of waking dream, so that I started with a shock of something like terror when I suddenly perceived a figure approaching me, that of a man, clothed in white garments fashioned somewhat after the monastic type, yet hardly to be called a monk's dress though he wore a sort of hood or cowl pulled partially over his face. My heart almost stopped beating, and I could scarcely breathe for nervous fear as he came towards me with an absolutely noiseless tread. He appeared to be young, and his eyes, dark and luminous, looked at me kindly, and, as I fancied, with a touch of pity. "'You are seeking the master?' he inquired in a gentle voice. "'He has instructed me to receive you.' and when you have rested for an hour, to take you to his presence. I had risen as he spoke, and his quiet manner helped me to recover myself a little. I am not tired, I answered. I could go to him at once. He smiled. That is not possible, he said. He is not ready. If you will come to the apartment allotted to you, I am sure you will be glad of some repose. May I ask you to follow me? He was perfectly courteous in demeanour, and yet— there was a certain impressive authority about him which silently impelled obedience. I had nothing further to demand or to suggest, and I followed him at once. He preceded me out of the domed hall into a long stone passage, 
where every sign of luxury beauty or comfort disappeared in cold vastness and where at every few steps large white boards with the word silence printed upon them in prominent black letters confronted the eyes the way we had to go seemed long and dreary and dungeon-like but presently we turned towards an opening where the sun shone through and my guide ascended a steep flight of stone stairs at the top of which was a massive door of oak heavily clamped with iron taking a key from his girdle he unlocked this door and throwing it open signed to me to pass in i did so and found myself in a plain stone-walled room with a vaulted roof and one very large lofty uncurtained window which looked out upon the sea and sheer down the perpendicular face of the rock on which the chateau d'ascelzion was built the furniture consisted of one small camp bedstead a table and two easy chairs a piece of rough matting on the floor near the bed and a hanging cupboard for clothes a well-fitted bathroom adjoined this apartment but beyond this there was nothing of modern comfort and certainly no touch of luxury i moved instinctively to the window to look out at the sea and then turned to thank my guide for his escort but he had gone thrilled with a sudden alarm i ran to the door it was locked i was a prisoner I stood breathless and amazed. Then a wave of mingled indignation and terror swept over me. How dared these people restrain my liberty? I looked everywhere round the room for a bell or some means of communication by which I could let them know my mind, but there was nothing to help me. I went to the window again, and finding it was like a French casement, merely latched in the centre, I quickly unfastened and threw it open. The scent of the sea rushed at me with a delicious freshness reminding me of Loch Scavig and the dream, and I leaned out, looking longingly over the wide expanse of glittering water just now broken into little crests of foam by a rising breeze. Then I saw that my room was a kind of turret chamber, projecting itself sheer over a great wall of rock, which evidently had its base in the bed of the ocean. There was no escape for me that way, even if I had sought it. I drew back from the window and paced round and round my room like a trapped animal, angry with myself for having ventured into such a place, and forgetting entirely my previous determination to go through all that might happen to me with patience and unflinching nerve. Presently I sat down on my narrow camp bed and tried to calm myself. After all, what was the use of my anger or excitement? I had come to the house of Aselzion of my own wish and will and so far I had endured nothing difficult. Apparently, Aselzion was willing to receive me in his own good time, and I had only to wait the course of events. Gradually my blood cooled, and in a few minutes I found myself smiling at my own absurdly useless indignation. True, I was locked up in my own room like a naughty child, but did it matter so very much? I assured myself it did not matter at all, and, as I accustomed my mind to this conviction, I became perfectly composed and quite at home in my strange surroundings. I took off my hat and cloak and put them by. Then I went into the bathroom and refreshed my face with delicious splashes of cold water. The bathroom possessed a full-length mirror fitted into the wall, a fact which rather amused me, as I felt it must have been there always and could not have been put up specially for me. 
so that it would seem these mystic brothers were not without some personal vanity i surveyed myself in it with surprise as i took down my hair and twisted it up again more tidily for i had expected to look fagged and tired whereas my face presented a smiling freshness which was unexpected and astonishing to myself the plain black dress i wore was dusty with travel and i shook it as free as i could from railway griminess feeling that it was scarcely the attire i should have chosen for an audience of Aselzion. however i said to myself if he has me locked up like this and gives me no chance of sending for my luggage at the inn i can only submit and make the best of it and returning from the bathroom to the bedroom i again looked out of my lofty window across the sea as i did so leaning a little over the ledge something soft and velvety touched my hand it was a red rose clambering up the turret just within my reach its opening petals lifted themselves towards me like sweet lips turned up for kisses and i was for a moment startled for i could have sworn that no rose of any kind was there when i first looked out one rose from all the roses in heaven where had i heard those words and what did they signify then i remembered carefully and with extreme tenderness i bent over that beautiful appealing flower i will not gather you i whispered following the drift of my own dreaming fancy if you are a message and i think you are stay there as long as you can and talk to me i shall understand and so for a while we made silent friends with each other till i might have said with the poet the soul of the rose went into my blood at any rate something keen fine and subtle stole over my senses moving me to an intense delight in merely being alive i forgot that i was in a strange place among strange men i forgot that i was to all intents and purposes a prisoner i forgot everything except that i lived and that life was ecstasy i had no very exact idea of the time my watch had stopped but the afternoon light was deepening and long lines of soft amber and crimson in the sky were beginning to spread a radiant path for the descent of the sun while i still remained at the window i suddenly heard the rise and swell of deep organ music solemn and sonorous it was as though the waves of the sea had set themselves to song some instinct then told me there was someone in the room and i turned round quickly to find my former guide in the white garments standing silently behind me waiting i had intended to complain at once of the way in which i had been imprisoned as though i were a criminal but at sight of his grave composed figure i lost all my hardihood and could say nothing i merely stood still attendant on his pleasure his dark eyes gleaming from under his white cowl looked at me with a searching enquiry as though he expected me to speak but as i continued to keep silence he smiled you are very patient he said quietly and that is well the master awaits you a tremor ran through me and my heart began to beat violently i was to have my wilful desires granted then i was actually to see and speak with the man to whom raphael centaurus owed his prolonged youth and power and under whose training he had passed through an ordeal which had taught him some of the deepest mysteries of life the result of my own wishes seemed now so terrifying to me that i could not have uttered a word had i tried 
I followed my escort in absolute silence. Once, in my nervous agitation, I slipped on the stone staircase and nearly fell. He at once caught me by the hand and supported me, and the kindness and gentle strength of his touch renewed my courage. His wonderful eyes looked steadily into mine. "'Do not be afraid,' he said in a low tone. "'There is really nothing to fear.' We passed the domed hall and its sparkling fountain, and in two or three minutes came to a deep archway veiled by a portiere of some rich stuff woven in russet brown and gold. This curtain my guide threw back noiselessly, showing a closed door. Here he came to a standstill and waited. I waited with him, trying to be calm, though my mind was in a perfect tumult of expectation mingled with doubt and dread. That closed door seemed to me to conceal some marvellous secret with which my whole future life and destiny were likely to be involved. Suddenly it opened. I saw a beautiful octagonal room, richly furnished, with the walls lined, so it appeared, from floor to ceiling with books. One or two great stands and vases of flowers made flashes of color among the shadows, and a quick upward glance showed me that the ceiling was painted in fresco. Then my guide signed to me to enter. The master will be with you in a moment, he said. Please sit down. Here he gave me an encouraging smile. You are a little nervous. Try and compose yourself. You need not be at all anxious or frightened. I tried to smile in response, but I felt far more ready to weep. I was possessed by a sudden, hopeless, and helpless depression which I could not overcome. My guide went away at once, and the door closed after him in the same mysteriously silent fashion in which it had opened. I was left to myself, and I sat down on one of the numerous deep easy chairs which were placed about the room, trying hard to force myself into at least the semblance of quietude. But after all, what was the use of even assuming composure when the man I had come to meet probably had the power to gauge the whole gamut of a human being's emotion at a moment's notice. Instinctively I pressed my hand against my heart, and felt the letter my lover had given me. Surely that was no dream. I drew a long breath like a sigh, and turned my eyes towards the window, which was set in a sort of double arch of stone, and which showed me a garden stretching far away from the edges of soft lawns and flower borders, into a picturesque vista of woodland and hill. A warmth of rosy light illumined the fair scene, indicating that the glory of the sunset had begun. Impulsively, I rose to go and look out, then stopped, checked and held back by a swift, compelling awe. I was no longer alone. I was confronted by the tall, commanding figure of a man, wearing the same white garments as those of my guide, a man whose singular beauty and dignity of aspect would have enforced admiration from even the most callous and unobservant, and I knew that I was truly at last in the presence of Aselzion. Overpowered by this certainty, I could not speak. I could only look and wonder as he drew near me. His cowl was thrown back, fully displaying his fine intellectual head, his eyes, deep blue and full of light, studied my face with a keen scrutiny, which I could feel as though it were a searching ray burning into every nook and cranny of my heart and soul. 
the blood rushed to my cheeks in a warm wave then suddenly rallying my forces i returned him glance for glance thus we moved each on our own lines of spiritual attraction closer together till presently a slight smile brightened the gravity of his handsome features and he extended both hands to me you are welcome he said in a voice that expressed the most perfect music of human speech rash and undisciplined as you are you are welcome timidly i laid my hands in his grateful for the warm strong clasp he gave them then all at once hardly knowing how it happened i sank on my knees as before some saint or king silently seeking his blessing there was a moment's deep stillness and he laid his hands on my bowed head poor child he said gently you have adventured far for love and life it will be hard if you should fail may all the powers of god and nature help you this said he raised me with an infinitely courteous kindness and placed a chair for me near a massive table-desk on which there were many papers some neatly tied up and labelled others lying about in apparent confusion and when we were both seated he began conversation in the simplest and easiest fashion you know of course that i have been prepared for your arrival here he said by one of my students, Rafael Santoris. He has been seeking you for a long time, but now he has found you, he is hardly better off, for you are a rebellious child and unwilling to recognize him. Is it not so? I felt a little more courageous now, and answered him at once. I am not unwilling to recognize any true thing, I said, but I do not wish to be deceived, or to deceive myself. He smiled. Do you not? How do you know that you have not been deceiving yourself ever since your gradual evolvement from subconscious into conscious life? Nature has not deceived you. Nature always takes herself seriously. But you, have you not tried in various moods or phases of existence to do something cleverer than nature, to more or less outwit her, as it were? Come, come, don't look so puzzled about it. You have only done what all so-called reasonable human beings do, and think themselves justified in doing. But now, in your present state, which is an advancement, and not a retrogression, you have begun to gain a little wider knowledge, with a little deeper humility, and I am inclined to have great patience with you. I raised my eyes, and was reassured by his kindly glance. Now, to begin with, he went on, you should know at once that we do not receive women here. It is against our rule and order, we are not prepared for them. We do not want them. They are never more than half souls. My heart gave an indignant bound, but I held my peace. He looked straight at me, while with one hand he put together a few stray papers on his desk. Well, why do you not give me the obvious answer? he queried. Why do you not say that if women are half souls, men are the same, and that two halves must conjoin to make one? Foolish child! You need not burn with suppressed offense at what sounds a slighting description of your sex. It is not meant as such. You are half-souls, and the chief trouble with you is that you seldom have the sense to see it, or to make any endeavor to form the perfect and indivisible union, a sacred task which is left in your hands. Nature is forever working to bring the right halves together. Man is forever striving to scatter them apart. And though it all comes right at the last, as it must, 
there is no need for delay involving either months or centuries you women were meant to be the angels of salvation but instead of this you are the ruin of your own ideals i could offer no contradiction to this for i felt it to be true as i have just said he went on this is no place for women the mere idea that you should imagine yourself capable of submitting to the ordeal of a student here is on the face of it incredible only for raphael's sake have i consented to see you and explain to you how impossible it is that you should remain i interrupted him i must remain i said firmly do with me whatever you like put me in a cell and keep me prisoner give me any hardship to endure and i will endure it but do not turn me away without teaching me something of your peace and power the peace and power which raphael possesses and which i too must possess if i would help him and be all in all to him here i paused overcome by my own emotion aselzion looked full at me that is your desire to help him and to be all in all to him he said why did you not realize this ages ago and even now you have wavered in the allegiance you owe to him you have doubted him though all your inward instincts tell you that he is your soul's true mate and that your own heart beats toward him like a bird in a cage beating against the bars toward liberty i was silent my fate seemed in the balance but i left it to aselzion who if his power meant anything could read my thoughts better than i could express them he rose from his desk and paced slowly up and down absorbed in meditation presently he stopped abruptly in front of me if you stay here he said you must understand what it means it means that you must dwell as one apart in your own room entirely alone except when summoned to receive instruction your meals will be served there and you will feel like a criminal undergoing punishment rather than enlightenment and you may speak to no one unless spoken to first moreover he interrupted himself and beckoned me to follow him into another room adjoining the one we were in here leading me to a window he showed me a very different view from the sunlit landscape and garden i had lately looked upon a dismal square of rank grass in which stood a number of black crosses these do not mark deaths he said but failures failures not in a worldly sense but failures in making of life the eternal and creative thing it is eternal here and now as long as we shall choose do you seek to be one of them no i answered quietly i shall not fail he gave a slight impatient sigh so they all said they whose records are here and he pointed to the crosses with an impressive gesture some of the men who have thus left their mark with us are at this moment among the world's most brilliant and successful personalities wealthy and in great social request and only they themselves know where the canker lies only they are aware of their own futility and they live knowing that their life must lead into other lives and dreading that inevitable change which is bound by law to bring them into whatever position they have chiefly sought his voice was grave and compassionate and a faint tremor of fear ran through me these were and are men he continued and you a woman would boldly attempt the adventures in which they failed think for a moment how weak and ignorant and all unprepared you are 
when you first began your psychic studies with a teacher whom we both loved and honoured, one whom you knew by the name of Heliobus, you had scarcely lived at all in the world. Since then you have worked hard and done much, but in your close application to the conquest of difficulties you have missed many things by the way. I give you credit for patience and faith. These have accomplished much for you, and now you are at a crucial point in your career when your will, like the rudder of a ship, trembles in your hand, and you are plunging into unknown further deeps where there may be storm and darkness. There is danger ahead for any doubting, proud, or rebellious soul. It is but fair to warn you. I am not afraid, I said in a low tone. I can but die. Child, that is just what you cannot do. Grasp that fact firmly at once and forever. You cannot die. There is no such thing as death. If you could die, and have done with all the duties, cares, perplexities, and struggles altogether, the eternal problem would be greatly simplified. But the idea of death is only one of a million human delusions. Death is an impossibility in the scheme of life. What is called by that name is merely a shifting and reinvestiture of imperishable atoms. The endless varying forms of this shifting and reinvestiture of atoms is the secret we and our students have set ourselves to master, and some of us have mastered it sufficiently to control both the matter and spirit whereof we are made. But the way of learning is not an easy way. Raphael Santoris himself could have told you that he was all but overcome in the trial for I spare no one, and if you persist in your rash intention, I cannot spare you simply because of your sex. I do not ask to be spared, I said gently. I have already told you I will endure anything. A slight smile crossed his face. So you will, I believe, he answered. In the old days I can well understand your enduring martyrdom. I can see you facing lions in the Roman arena. As he thus spoke, I started, and the warm blood rushed to my cheeks. Rather than not carry out your own fixed resolve, whether such resolve was right or wrong, I can see you preparing to drown yourself in the waters of the Nile, rather than break through man's stupid superstition and convention. Why do you look so amazed? Am I touching on some old memory? Come, let us leave these black emblems of coward mortality, and return to the more cheerful room. We re-entered the library together, and he seated himself again at his desk, turning towards me with an air of settled and impressive authority. What you want to learn, and what every beginner in the study of psychic law generally wants to learn first of all, is how to obtain purely personal satisfaction and advantage, he said. You want to know three things, the secret of life, the secret of youth, the secret of love, Thousands of philosophers and students have entered upon the same research, and one, perhaps, out of the thousand, has succeeded where all the rest have failed. The story of Faust is perpetually a thing of interest, because it treats of these secrets, which according to the legend are only discoverable through the aid of the devil. We know that there is no devil, and that everything is divinely ordained by a divine intelligence so that in the deepest researches which we are permitted to make there is nothing to fear but ourselves. Failure is always brought about by the students, not by the study in which they are engaged. 
the reason of this being that when they know a little they think they know all with the result that they become intellectually arrogant an attitude that instantly nullifies all previous attainment the secret of life is a comparatively easy matter to understand the secret of youth a little more difficult the secret of love the most difficult of all because out of love is generated both the perpetuity of life and of youth now your object in coming here is down at the root of it absolutely personal i will not say selfish because that sounds hard and i will give you credit for the true womanly feelings you have that being conscious in your own soul of Raphael Santoris as your superior and master, as well as your lover, you wish to be worthy of him, if only in the steadfastness and heroism of your character. I will grant you all that. I will also grant that it is perfectly natural, and therefore right, that you should wish to retain youth and beauty and health for his sake. And I would even urge that this desire should be solely for his sake. But just now you are not quite sure whether it is for his sake. You wish to hold, for yourself, the secret of life and the power of life's continuance, the secret of youth and the power of youth's continuance. And you most certainly wish to have for yourself, as well as for Raphael, the secret of love and the power of love's continuance. None of these secrets can be disclosed to worldlings, by which term I mean those who allow themselves to be moved from their determination and distracted by a thousand ephemeral matters. I do not say you are such an one, but you, like all who live in the world, have your friends and acquaintances, people who are ready to laugh at you and make mock of your highest aims, people whose delight would be to block the way to your progress. And the question with me is, are you strong enough to endure the mental strain which will be put upon you by ignorant and vulgar opposition, and even positive derision? You may be, you are self-willed enough, though not always rightly so. For example, you want to gain knowledge apart from and independently of Raphael Santoris, yet you are an incomplete identity without him. The women of your day all follow this vicious policy, the desire to be independent and apart from men, which is the suicide of their nobler selves. None of them are complete creatures without their stronger halves. They are like deformed birds with only one wing, and a straight flight is impossible to them. He ceased, and I looked up. Whether I agree with you or not hardly matters, I said. I admit all my faults, and am ready to amend them, but I want to learn from you all that I may, all that you think I am capable of learning, and I promise absolute obedience. A slight smile lightened his eyes. And humility? I bent my head. And humility. You are resolved, then? I am resolved. He paused a moment, then appeared to make up his mind. So be it, he said. But on your own head be your own mischance, if any mischance should happen. I take no responsibility. Of your own will you have come here. Of your own will you elect to stay here, where there is no one of your own sex with whom you can communicate, and of your own will you must accept all the consequences. Is that agreed? His steel-blue eyes flashed with an almost supernatural brilliancy as he put the question, and I was conscious of a sense of fear. But I conquered this and answered simply, It is agreed. 
he gave me a keen glance that swept me as it were from head to foot then turning from me abruptly struck a handle on his desk which set a loud bell clanging in some outer corridor my former guide entered almost immediately and Aselzion addressed him honorius he said show this lady to her room she will follow the course of a probationer and student as he spoke honorius gave me a look of undisguised amazement and pity the moment she desires to leave every facility for her departure is to be granted to her as long as she remains under instruction the rule for her as you know is solitude and silence i looked at him and thought how swiftly his face had changed it was no longer softened by the grave benevolence and kindness that had sustained my courage a stern shadow darkened it and his eyes were averted i saw i was expected to leave the room but i hesitated you will let me thank you i murmured holding out my hands timidly almost pleadingly he turned to me slowly and took my hands in his own poor child you have nothing to thank me for he said bear in mind as one of your first lessons in the difficult way you are going that you have nothing to thank anyone for and nothing to blame anyone for in the shaping of your destiny but yourself go and may you conquer your enemy my enemy i repeated wonderingly yes again yourself the only power any man or woman has ever had or ever will have to contend with he dropped my hands and i suppose i must have expressed some mute appeal in my upward glance at him for the faintest shadow of a smile came on his lips god be with you he said softly and then with a gentle gesture signed to me to leave him i at once obeyed and followed the guide honorius who led me back to my own room where without speaking a word he closed and locked the door upon me as before to my surprise i found my luggage which i had left at the inn placed ready for me and on a small dresser set in a niche of the wall which i had not noticed before there was a plate of fruit and dry bread with a glass of cold water on going to look at this little refection which was simply yet daintily set out i saw that the dresser was really a small lift evidently connected with the domestic offices of the house and i concluded that this would be the means by which all my meals would be served i did not waste much time in thinking about it however i was only too glad to be allowed to remain in the house of aselzion on any terms and the fact that i was imprisoned under lock and key did not now trouble me i unpacked my few things among which were three or four favorite books then i sat down to my frugal repast for which hunger provided a keen appetite when i had finished i took a chair to the open window and sat there looking out on the sea i saw my friendly little rose leaning its crimson head against the wall just below me with quite a confidential air and it gave me a sense of companionship otherwise the solitude was profound the sky was darkening into night though one or two glowing bars of deep crimson still lingered as memories of the departed sun and a pearly radiance to the eastward showed a suggestion of the coming moon i felt the sense of deep environing silence closing me in like a wall and looking back over my shoulder from the window to the interior of my room it seemed full of drifting shadows dark and impalpable i remembered i had no candle or any other sort of light and this gave me a passing uneasiness but only for a moment 
I could go to bed, I thought, when I was tired of watching the sea. At any rate, I would wait for the moonrise. The scene I looked upon was divinely peaceful and beautiful, one that a painter or poet would have reveled in, and I was content. I was not conscious of any fear, but I did feel myself being impressed, as it were, and gradually overcome by the deepening stillness and great loneliness of my surroundings. The rule for her is solitude and silence, so had said Aselzion, and evidently the rule was being enforced. End of chapter 13